Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Clark Strand is a teacher, journalist, and former Zen Buddhist monk who previously served as senior editor of the magazine Tricycle, The Buddhist Review. He's the author of the books How to Believe in God, Whether You Believe in Religion or Not, and Meditation Without Gurus. His latest book is Waking the Buddha, How the Most Dynamic and Empowering Buddhist Movement in History is Changing Our Concept of Religion. The group is the Soka Gokai International, or SGI, the largest Buddhist movement in the world today, with over 12 million members. SGI bases itself on the teachings of Nishiren, the 13th century Japanese Buddhist reformer. Through his book, Strand offers broad insight into how and why SGI, with its practical applications and egalitarian approach, is redefining not just Buddhism, but religion itself. Clark, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Karen. Glad to be here. We have a lot to go over today. And so first, I would just like to, uh, before we get into this fascinating conversation uh, about this great topic, um, can you just share a little about your own journey? Uh, how did you come to Buddhism and your experience, um, uh, prior experience as a Zen monk? Sure. Well, you know, I in high school, growing up in Atlanta in the 1970s, I, I took a course. I think I might have been a junior in high school at the time, and um, was, I was going to a private school, and the course uh, was on world religion, and we used uh, a book by Houston Smith called The Religions of Man. And this was my first real exposure to anything other than the uh, sort of down-home Protestant Southern uh, uh, flavor of Christianity that I'd grown up with. And so I read about all different kinds of uh, uh, religious traditions. And there was a special chapter on Zen. And one day the uh, teacher uh, asked as a kind of an expert, uh, I'm sorry, as a kind of uh, exercise for people to uh, come up to the board and draw their concept of God. And so this was a classroom of about maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 or, or 16 students. And one after another, the person would go to the board and they would write words like love or they would do drawings. or uh, and, and finally, you know, by toward the end of the hour, uh, each person had sort of made their impromptu uh, uh, presentation and the board was completely covered. <clears throat> there were just two people left, a, a girl and me. And she was called on next to last. And she went up and she uh, took a piece of chalk and she uh, drew a circle around uh, the outlines of the blackboard, including everything that was on the blackboard. And then it was my turn and there was nothing left to do but to go up and to erase the board. And this was an Episcopal uh, uh, day school and, and people were scandalized because they thought that must mean that I was an atheist or something like that. But my teacher turned to me and said, well, that's very Zen. So that was the first time I ever heard the word, and uh, it was my first exposure to uh, any idea like uh, uh, nothingness or emptiness, uh, 
And so, you know, when I encountered uh, the teachings of Zen Buddhism uh, a few years later when I was in college, uh, you know, I was already uh, leaning a bit in that direction, having been told by my uh, high school teacher that I must surely be a Buddhist. <laughs> Clark, I just want to say that is a fascinating uh, story, and I hope the the last two students there got A pluses for circling everything and then erasing it. That is just an amazing, amazing comment on how how bright you know high school students are at at this at this time. And in in a sense, it's sort of the it's like the goal of the Godspeed Institute as well as we speak with folks around the world and about all the religious uh, beliefs and and practices. And on some level, you know, the the erasing or the nothingness is the goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was in, in retrospect, it was a, sort of a magical, wonderful time. There was that sort of post-60s openness to uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, religious teachings and traditions. And I think nowadays, even in, in most private schools that aren't of an explicitly religious nature, uh, you don't find uh, too many courses on religion being offered. So I was very uh, fortunate to uh, to, to, you know, be in a school that uh, offered a kind of an open forum for discussions of those kinds, um, you know, and to sort of get started on my path in that way. Uh, when I was in college, I I was reading a book on Zen Buddhism one night, and I had a, a, a mind-altering experience that, um, or soul-altering experience that really set me firmly on the path and uh, that experience lasted only a fraction of a second, but its um, uh, its effects were very uh, uh, present and powerful in my life for two to three weeks afterwards. One morning, I uh, woke up about two weeks later, and I realized that I had slept for the first time in, in, in over two weeks. And by that, I mean that I had... Uh, experienced, you know, basically unconsciousness. Uh, during during the, the previous uh, two weeks, I had simply, at the end of the day, I'd go, go upstairs to my bedroom and lie down on the bed and uh, enter a place that, um, that at the time uh, I thought of as a, a sort of a sea of bottomless light. And I would just lie there until the morning in my in a state of very deep, sort of perfect restfulness. And during the daytime, everything went off without a hitch. Uh, life was beautiful. I felt tremendous love uh, for everyone and everything I saw. Uh, but then it was over. And I woke up one morning. I realized that I had actually been asleep. And the difference was really night and day. And I wanted nothing more in the world um, uh, afterwards to get that back. I didn't know how I'd gotten it. Uh, I didn't know how it had happened but I had been reading a book on Zen Buddhism at the time, and so I took that as a kind of a sign that somehow Zen uh, might hold the answer. So I tried going back to college, but uh, this was in the uh, uh, late 70s. And, but, but I went back, and you know the professors all sounded like the adults on, in Peanuts uh, cartoons, you know, wah, wah, wah. I was just listening to the professors, and nothing that was coming out of their, their mouths at the time you know, seemed to, to make any sense in light of this, this great revelation about the, you know, the true nature of, of the world, the reality of the soul and self. And so I, um, I had to leave. I dropped out you know, uh, very, very uh, suddenly. I went to the dean and and I told him that I, I had to find a Zen monastery somewhere, and he said, uh, uh, maybe you should see the uh, uh, 
local uh, therapist instead. And I, I looked at him and I said, you know, what I'm experiencing isn't depression, it's despair. And the dean gave me this sort of blank look, and then I guess he, he you know, signed a slip of paper, giving me a leave of absence, and slid across the desk. And next thing I knew, I was on a Greyhound bus uh, north to a Zen Buddhist monastery that had uh, uh, just uh, opened its doors in upstate New York uh, the year before. And, uh, you know, that's how I set foot on that path. Uh, this was in the Western Catskills. <clears throat> it was a monastery that had been founded by a Japanese abbot uh, and had opened in uh, 1976, just the year before. This was in 1977 when I went there for the first time. And, uh, you know, I met the abbot and was given the you know simplest, most straightforward uh, instruction I've ever received from a spiritual teacher, which was simply to sit, to meditate. So that's what I did. I, I spent a little time there. I went back to Atlanta, where I was living at the time, got a job as a construction worker, and basically taught myself to meditate. Now, Clark, prior to this, um, were you raised in any kind of spiritual or religious household? And then I'm wondering also... What did you think Buddhism could provide that you were not experiencing? Well, I was raised in a religious household. My uh, parents were both Christians. My father had been uh, to seminary as a young man and had decided uh, to go into education instead when he came out of the seminary. My mother later went through seminary, but it was a religious household. Uh, Presbyterian and Methodist by original persuasion, later the uh, the family drifted more towards Episcopalianism. And uh, But growing up in the South during the Civil Rights Movement uh, really uh, set religions of all kinds on a kind of a collision course with, uh, with history. And what I realized at a certain point was that the very people that I was brushing shoulders with in the pews on Sunday were the most vocal opponents of civil rights. That was less true in the Episcopal Church than it had been in the Presbyterian and Methodist churches. But uh, there was a tremendous amount of opposition to the civil rights movement, and uh, that soured me quite a bit. And so by the time I was... Uh, you know, like 14, 15 years old, uh, you know, during the, you know, youth Sunday school meetings, I was asking questions like, where exactly in the Bible does it say that uh, that uh, black people can't marry white people? And of course, the you know, the uh, the uh, uh, Sunday school teacher was, you know, maybe an insurance salesman by day or something like that, I had no idea. And then it escalated and you know, where in the Bible does it say that we should be uh, fighting in Vietnam and you know, so forth and so on? And these were unanswerable questions. And one day, my one Sunday morning, my father came into the room as we were all getting ready to go to church. And he said, I had reached the age where I could decide whether to go to church uh, or not for myself. And I took that to mean that I had made enough of a nuisance of myself at church that I was now ex- to be excused from <laughs> from attending. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so now then, your first experience of Buddhism was through Zen, as you mentioned before. And can you share then a little bit of what your actual experience was of that? Because you went on to then, you know, seek or be drawn to a different type of Buddhism, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but what did what did you personally uh, find in the Zen Buddhism? Well, yeah, at the time, you know, this, this was, I had read uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, and I'd read a lot of classic Zen literature. And so 
um, you know, having, you know, my spiritual life was fueled by two things. One was, an, you know, an actual experience of the truth of Zen uh, that I had firsthand that, that came, you know, came unannounced and uh, unrehearsed. And the other was this tremendous sort of uh, a culture-wide uh, romantic infatuation with Buddhism and all things Eastern, especially Zen. You know, Zen had been the, uh, you know, the... the the, the darling of the beat generation. And, uh, you know, I'd grown up very immersed in sort of Zen ideas, uh, you know, as they trickled in uh, to America through the writings of D.T. Suzuki and Ramdas and, uh, you know, various various uh, uh, personalities and, and people who had written about Zen or practiced Zen and, and then talked about it in the media. And so um, there was this sense that I was on this kind of a noble quest. You know, I, I dropped out of college to study Zen. I went back to college and I got married. I, I subsequently left my first marriage to become a monk. Uh, so there was very much this idea that I was, you know, renouncing the world and, and on a, a higher path. What I realized later on was that um, at that point there weren't that many of us practicing Buddhism in the in the 70s, but those that were were very strictly segregated. There were the what I would call the upper middle way uh, Buddhists, who were people mostly of European American descent, college educated, many with advanced degrees, and generally of uh, uh, you know. An, uh, upper to upper middle uh, socioeconomic background, and those people were off practicing Zen and Tibetan Buddhism and uh, Vipassana-style meditation, oftentimes taking trips to Asia. They had the disposable time and income to go off on long retreats and to indulge a kind of, a, uh, you know, a, a spiritual passion that was sometimes no more than a spiritual fantasy. Have getting enlightened by, you know, practicing as a kind of a weekend meditation warrior. And I practiced this, uh, this style of Buddhism very seriously. I don't want to sell myself short. I was very sincere about it, and I gave it all that I had. But nevertheless, I was a modern, basically, even with a shaved head, a modern American layperson, okay, with, with a modern uh, uh, American sensibility, trying to do a, an ancient to medieval uh, mystical practice that had originally been uh, designed for cloistered monks and nuns in Asia and didn't always translate very well into, uh, you know, in, into modern American life. And so I was doing a practice that, on the one hand, uh, it was, you know, giving me a certain degree of peace of mind, but on the other, I couldn't really sustain it in the regular ordinary world. Like I would go off before I became a monk, I would go off on these retreats for a week or two at a time. I would come back and have a few days of peace. And then suddenly I'd be, you know, in the midst in the thick of life with his problems again. And the, the skills that I'd learned on the meditation cushion didn't necessarily translate into dealing with the actual problems of life. Does that make sense? It certainly does, and I can relate to that because I don't think it's specific necessarily to a Buddhist retreat in terms of, uh, you know, the Christian or Catholic retreats that I have attended and led myself. I know that that feeling of enclosure that one can nurture, let's say over a weekend or a week, and being unplugged, once you get past the giggling at the silent meals, <laughs> as, I, as I struggled with my first time, um, but, you know, you, you do wind up literally feeling almost like on a different frequency. And then, you, yes, you get 
you know, you can watch folks get back in the car and instantly the cell phone comes out and that and that wavelength changes. And so that is a challenge in general is is how to, you know, maintain that connection and that feeling. Um, And so it sounds that, you know, your your search was not done. And then you you came to discover uh, another form of Buddhism. And so how did you discover Nashiran Buddhism? Well, you know, I I became a monk and a teacher in my own right. I was in charge of a, a temple on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, um, and uh, and so I was very immersed in in the. I mean, I was as immersed in the Zen life as you could be as an American. You know, I'd sort of taken it to the furth- furthest extreme, and I was uh, actually on the verge of becoming the. Uh, first Rinzai uh, Zen Buddhist uh, master ever trained uh, fully outside of Asia when I just uh, couldn't take it anymore. I was waking up in the morning as depressed as I had ever felt. And this was at the very moment when people were telling me, uh, you must be very enlightened. <laughs> you know, I was I had a shaved head, an impressive set of robes and responsibilities to go with them. And uh, and yet I wasn't happy, and I couldn't figure out exactly what was wrong. But I remember one uh, day in particular when it all sort of uh, when you know when the chickens came home to roost, I was upstairs on the third floor of the uh, uh, of the Zendo, the Zen Meditation Center that I was running in Manhattan, and I was prepared to go down and to give a Zen talk on the first floor. And, you know, there were, I don't know, probably a few dozen Zen students, you know, lined up along either wall, meditating in the dim room, eyes, you know, gazing down at the floor. And I was going to go down and, you know, take the platform at the, at the front of the Zendo and then give a talk to begin the retreat. And I looked in the mirror to straighten my robes before I headed downstairs and I saw a person I didn't recognize. I saw someone with a shaved head with robes that, you know, didn't look like ordinary dress at all, and with an expression on his face that didn't look like me. And I had to ask myself, how is it that through this practice that I've done so seriously for so long, that I've come to resemble someone other than myself? I think it was that moment that I realized that my real sort of basic human needs weren't really being addressed. Uh, by a a style of Buddhism, uh, the appeal of which was really based on its antiquity rather than its modernity. I I think it's important to stress that point, that many of the practices which have come to us from Asia have come in their pre-modern form. And although... Uh, you know, there are many reasons why a person will will say that they are attracted to, uh, you know, various different Eastern traditions, and, I, and I'm sure that you know they, they they feel very strongly the reality of that of that pull because of the, you know, whatever past life you know connections they may feel that they have or or may in fact have, or because of the aesthetic or the. the the nobility of the philosophy or whatever it is, there's some basic level on which we prefer these traditions because they do not engage the problems of modernity and are therefore a kind of a vacation from the pressing issues of 21st century life. And sort of turn off our cell phones, you know, unplug from the culture, and we really sort of get away from it all. But when we go back, those problems which haven't been dealt with are just right there. 
And that's what happened to me with Zen. I just put my problems on hold for about 20 years. And so when they all came sort of crashing down on me, I, I got into therapy and I started to sort of sort my life out. I realized I did want to be married. I wanted to have a family. I grew my hair back. I got a job. And But then I, I, I was restless, though, because I, you know, I very much wanted a, a, a vibrant and vital spiritual life. So I, I went on a quest. Uh, I searched the religions of the world. I, I did many, many different practices. And because I was, uh, by that point, working at a Buddhist magazine and developed the skills of a journalist, I, I began writing about them. So I would, you know, I would go inside of, uh, you know, Hasidic synagogues and, uh, you know, Hindu ashrams and Christian monasteries, and I would adopt these practices and do them for a period of time and then write about them. But I could never quite uh, settle down, uh, you know, anywhere with anything because I, I was looking for something that I knew must exist somewhere, which was a really modern approach to religion, but I couldn't find it. Um, I just wanted to say what you're saying is so pertinent because although there is a timelessness to the core spiritual values of uh, faith around the world, there are core, you know, essential um, beliefs or experiences or practices that connect to timeless factors of our human existence, uh, you bring up a very, very pertinent point, which is, but what about this modern life and these very real things that are not timeless, that are happening to me right now in this very practical human flesh kind of way? And and so I, I can hear... Um, uh, your journey in that. And that's very, very uh, uh, pertinent, what you're saying. So now, so now you, you discovered then Nishiran Buddhism. I'm interested in finding out, first of all, who was Nishiran? Because uh, I think you're going back to 13th century there. But I also think that the organization is a modern one. And this may be where you found an answer. That's exactly right. I, it, it happened for me in uh, 2003. I had heard about Nishiran Buddhism uh, probably a decade earlier when I was uh, senior editor at Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, because, uh, you know, I, basically all kinds of information about Buddhism was, was continuously crossing my desk, and so I was exposed to everything. Uh, but it didn't really take, uh, I didn't really know what they were about. I knew that they chanted Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, that they focused on uh, uh, worldly benefits and and, and none of that really sort of rang true with my uh, with my Zen Buddhist past, and so I really uh, sort of disregarded it, didn't pay much attention to it. And despite the fact that even then the Soka Gakkai was, uh, you know, the largest uh, uh, Buddhist organization in America, it just didn't really appear on my radar very much. But then, uh, about ten years later, in 2003, America was about to invade invade Iraq, and I went down to the city with my wife and family to participate in the largest coordinated uh, peace uh, protest in human history, which was 12 million people in cities around the world on February 15, 2003. And uh, it was a very uh, empowering and wonderful kind of experience. And I think those of us who participated in it felt sure that it would have some kind of an effect on the on the direction our nation was was taking. But it was clearly apparent within just a week or two after that day that it wasn't going to change anything. America was headed to Iraq. 
there were there were very grave questions about uh, the efficacy of, of an invasion such as the one that was planned. Uh, you know, we later, of course, found out that you know the, the various reasons for going there. You know, almost none of them were true. But at the time, there was just this tremendous doubt and this feeling that this was wrong and it was the wrong approach to take and it would only lead to more violence and more suffering. So I was looking to see about that time, well, are there any Buddhist organizations that are really uh, squarely focused on peace as their, as, their, uh, as their primary idea? And the answer was no. There were... Buddhist organizations, there were even Buddhist peace fellowships, which were sort of confederations of, you know, peace-minded individuals from the different Buddhist schools in America. But there was no school of Buddhism that that took peace as its found, founding principle, right? It was mostly a kind of lip service. Uh, you know, people would talk about peace, the teachers would talk about peace, Maybe they would do some sort of a sit-in or demonstration every now and then at a nuclear facility or something. But there, was, there wasn't much organization and there wasn't much uh, a real, uh, clear, determined ideological focus, except for the SGI. And the way I discovered that was I was researching an article on prayer beads, because I'm always fascinated with prayer beads. And I found a... Um, a strange-looking Buddhist rosary, a photograph of one online, of a Buddhist rosary made by a wartime uh, uh, resistor, a war resistor in Tokyo in the 1940s. Mm. And this man had taken the cardboard milk bottle caps from his daily milk ration, which was a sort of a starvation ration, you know, basically starved these people to death over a period of years because they were given so few calories. And he, he, he put it together with a piece of jute string and made a rosary. And um, the photograph that I found had a little chalkboard next to it with a piece of chalk. And he was counting the number of times that he had said this particular Buddhist mantra. And I learned that this man had gone to prison in protest against the war. And that at any point, he or uh, the man who I subsequently discovered was his mentor, Sensabura Makaguchi, could have walked free just by saying that they endorsed the war effort, like all the other Buddhist schools in Japan at that time. They just refused to do it. And so I thought, well, here's a person who's really uh, committed to peace, uh, you know, at the level that, that we find, like, for instance, you know, Christian martyrs committed to their faith, people willing to die for it. And so that was my first real introduction to the teachings of Nishiren Buddhism and the Soku Gakkai. Uh, Jose Toto, the man in question, came out of prison after World War II, determined to spread the teachings of Nishiren Buddhism throughout uh, Japan as a way of rebuilding people's lives and founding them upon uh, principles of, of uh of international good, goodwill and, and uh, peace and end to warfare, and finally, nuclear disarmament. So it seemed like here was a Buddhist group that uh, was founded at the most basic level on ideas of, of peace and global harmony, and I thought, well, th th I need to look into this more. Thank you for that, Clark. And um, it's interesting to me, I believe that the Soka Gakkai was founded um, uh, it's it's either during or just after World War II, 
it actually got started in the in the 30s. Uh, there was uh, an educator, Sensubru Makaguchi, who also went to prison with Toda. He was the man who founded it. He died in prison uh, uh, as a result of malnutrition and harsh interrogation. And but Sensubru Makaguchi was an educator who believed uh, that that the educational system in Japan should be restructured to promote the happiness of children rather than creating mindless uh, uh, conformists who would do the will of the state. Uh, a, a popular motto during the war was obliterate the self to serve the state. And Makaguchi was completely opposed to that. And so he was dismissed from one position after another. Finally, uh, wrote a book called Value Creating Education, which uh, uh, which is basically what Sokodakai means. And uh, it was a group of Buddhist educators uh, who are all Nishiren Buddhists, and uh, they tried to, to reform and rebuild the system, but they ran afoul of the Japanese uh, war machine, and uh, uh, many, many of its leaders uh, you know, recanted rather than go to jail, but its top leaders, Jose Toda and, and, and Sensibura Makaguchi, went to prison. But it was based on an older form of Buddhism that was um, a reform movement that got started in the 13th century, and that was uh, Nishiren Daishonin. Daishonin means great saint. And Nishiren uh, was the son of a fisherman, and uh, he studied all the different types of Buddhism that were available to him during the Kamakura era, era of Japan. And uh, he studied Zen, he studied Tendai Buddhism, you know, he, he studied everything. But he couldn't find an approach to Buddhism that was empowering to the individual, and he couldn't find uh, an approach to Buddhism that, uh, that seemed to provide the basis for a peaceful coexistence in society. Uh, Japan was, was being run by a military elite during that uh, era. It was very similar to the uh, military elite that was, that was uh, ruling Japan during the years building up to World War II. And Nishiren opposed them. He was sentenced to death, uh, escaped, narrowly escaped execution, twice exiled, and yet he, he kept on, uh, you know, standing up for, for his beliefs. His core belief was, uh, was twofold. One was that it was, it was possible for a person to attain Buddhahood in this lifetime without changing their present form. And what that meant was that a fisherman could become a Buddha as a fisherman. A woman could become a Buddha as a woman. Previously in Buddhism, it was believed that you had to be reincarnated as a man before you could become a Buddha. A child could become a Buddha. Anyone could become a Buddha simply by chanting Nam Myoho Rinke Kyo and reuniting with the life force that pervaded the universe. So he had this, uh, this idea of Buddhist practice that was based on the Lotus Sutra, which is, I like to think of as the biggest boat in Buddhism, since it includes pretty much all the different kinds of practices that you find in the Buddhist uh, canon, but is nevertheless focused on this one idea of the eternal lifespan of the Buddha, meaning there's a kind of a life force at the bottom of everything that pervades the whole universe, and it's eternal. And to unite with that is to attain Buddhahood and happiness in this life. And Nishiren felt that this was possible. He also felt that the existing religious schools of his day 
<clears throat> favored the rich and powerful and cared nothing about the poor. And so he really fought very valiantly against that idea and tried to come up for the first time in Buddhist history with a form of Mahayana Buddhism that really honored the basic idea of the Mahayana, which is to include everyone. Mm, thank you so much for that, Clark. Um, so I just want to summarize a little bit here um, that the Soka Gakkai International um, w was founded with this dedication to Kozen Rufu, which is world peace. And that rather than offering just a sort of a calming, uh, escaping <laughs> form of spiritual practice, you use the word empowerment of the person as well. So there's world peace and there's also empowerment of the person to live their life and, and do their, the, 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 let's say the, you know, the revolution of their soul um, through chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo and uh, the Lotus Sutra. Doing this aligns oneself with the universal life force. This is Kerr Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and to religious tolerance. We're speaking with Clark Strand, author of the new book, Waking the Buddha, How the Most Dynamic and Empowering Buddhist Movement in History is Changing Our Concept of Religion. Now, Clark, um, in the first half of the program, we explored some background about your journey as well as the development of the uh, Soka Gakkai International and Nishiren Buddhism. Um, what inspired you to write your new book? Well, you know, I, I had spent so much time pursuing a uh, meditative approach to, to Buddhism and learning about various different meditative approaches to religion in general and these these were these were practices that were developed in a monastic con, uh, context often over a period of thousands of years it was primarily intended to serve uh, a cloistered population so when i found a practice that really empowered lay people for the first time, I was, I was very driven to, to study it, because here was a practice that, uh, that didn't tell the layperson that you know, the most they could hope for was to be reborn as a monk or nun. It didn't tell them that, well, you can be a good rank-and-file Catholic and, you know, uh, you know, follow the, uh, the Ten Commandments and, you know, believe in the dogma of the Catholic Church, but if you really wanted to do the religion, you know, you'd be a religious. You would be a, a monk or a nun or, or a priest. And so here was a, an approach to religion for which the layperson was the ideal. In other words, there was nothing apart from lay practice or higher than lay practice. Lay practice was it. So if you found yourself in the thick of life with responsibilities of a uh, mother, a father, uh, a child with older parents, or an older brother in charge of siblings, or just an ordinary individual in charge of yourself trying to make the best of it you could in life with a job, with responsibilities, with uh, you know, all kinds of things happening, ups and downs of life, that was the proper place to be. You didn't have to go off on a retreat. You didn't have to change your diet or your style of dress. You could start with where you were and work with that. 
So that was very, very enlightening, just to, to discover that there was an approach to religious practice. And the fact that it happened to be Buddhist, uh, you know, was just the plum on the pudding, you know, as far as I was concerned. I, I was willing to find it anywhere, and I'd searched everywhere for it. I was a little surprised to find it in Buddhism because Buddhism is so squarely uh, focused as a religion on, uh, you know, on on practices that are uh, th- that have traditionally really been developed by monks for monks. There aren't many uh, lay practices uh, in Buddhism that uh, you know that weren't really originally developed for for cloister monastics and don't serve them better than they do lay people. But here was a practice that served lay people best. So. I got very interested in it. I got, uh, I looked into the Soka Gakkai and started to learn about them. I discovered that they were the most racially and uh, ethnically and socioeconomically diverse uh, Buddhist organization in America. And the more I learned about them, the more I realized that they were most likely even the most uh, uh, ethnically, uh, racially, and socioeconomically diverse religious organization in the world. Now, I should qualify that by saying that, for instance, the Catholic Church in its entirety is is certainly uh, as diverse as, as any religious organization anywhere, because there's so many different types of people in it. But if you go to a Catholic Church anywhere in the world, chances are you're going to see one kind of person there. You're going to see Latino, you're going to see Irish people, you're going to see... Uh, uh, people, you know, primarily of uh, European uh, American descent. There's a tremendous amount of segregation within the Catholic Church, even though the Church itself as an umbrella organization includes all kinds of people. But if you walk into a Soka Gakkai meeting anywhere in America, you're likely to see a, a racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic mix that's unlike anything you're going to see anywhere in America, apart from, say, a subway car in Manhattan, right? I just stepped in unannounced one day to the uh, New York Culture Center out of curiosity, and I went upstairs. I was going to meet with the uh, office manager there who was going to answer some questions I had about the organization for an article I was working on, and, and I heard these people chanting Namiho Ringe Kyo down the hall, and I went in, and there they were in front of this scroll. There were about... 20 or 30 people on their lunch break all chanting together. And I looked at that room and I thought, oh my God, where did these people come from and what could they possibly have in common? Because there were just so many different types of people. And I think that as much as anything, having grown up in the civil rights era down south, was what won me over. Thank you for that. I, I can feel that, um, what you just shared. Now, uh, can you, while we're here, this would be a good point to explain a little bit more um, about the Gohansen, the scroll you mentioned, and also of the chant, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, and what the chant means. Can you share some of that? Sure. You know, what uh, what Nishiren uh, did had been done before uh, in a more limited kind of way. Uh, during the Kamakura era of Japanese history, we're talking basically the, the 13th, late 12th and, and 13th century in Japan, there were populist religious forms that focused on what you might call easy practices or single practices. One was the Nimbutsu, which was uh, a little bit, uh, it's sort of like the Asian version of the Jesus Prayer. Uh, 
the Nimbutsu uh, goes Namu Amida Butsu, and it means devotion to Amida Buddha, the Buddha of infinite light and life. And Amida Buddha is a Buddha who was uh, attained Buddhahood countless ages ago and vowed to save all beings. He was actually a Bodhisattva, and he vowed to that he would never uh, attain Buddhahood until all beings in the universe had been saved. But then according to the, the Pure Land teachings, uh, he did become a Buddha, which means he had already saved all beings. And so Pure Land Buddhists chant Namo Amida Butsu with the idea that uh, Amida Buddha in his infinite uh, wisdom and compassion has already redeemed them. And therefore, through faith alone, when they die, they will be reborn in the Pure Land, which is Amida Buddha's Western uh, paradise-like realm, where attaining Buddhahood will be relatively easy because all of the defilements and difficulties of this world will have been removed. And so he's a kind of a salvic figure like, like, uh, like Jesus, for instance. So there was this idea, but it didn't actually do anything for you in this life, right? Uh, this was this religion had tremendous appeal for the peasant class uh, during uh, during you know medieval uh, uh, Japanese uh, during the medieval Japanese period, but uh, but it didn't actually offer them much in terms of uh, changing the condition that uh, they were living uh, under at that time, which was you know often very dire. They were starving, there was constant warfare, uh, their lives were, uh, were dangerous, uh, and, and they were often in, in, you know, in great distress. There's a lot of instability. The weather was bad. There, was, you know, uh, there were earthquakes, fires, pandemics, what, what today we would call a you know, broad-scale epidemic you know, that wiped out large portions of the, of the population. And so Nishrin came along, and he said that um, he took a kind of a page out of uh, out of the Pure Land book to the extent that he used a mantra, which was the title of the Lotus Sutra, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which means devotion to the Lotus of the Mystic Law. And uh, he said, "You can chant to this, but you aren't chanting it for rebirth in some heaven-like realm." You're chanting it to become a Buddha in this lifetime by changing your existing karma and elevating your life condition now, that you can practice Buddhism for this world and not for the next. And because it wasn't a, a practice that was based in some sort of, uh, you know, idea, monthly ideal of, uh, uh, you know, a, a secluded practice in a mountain monastery, uh, people could actually do it on the fly. I mean, Nishrin at one point even talks about how a man and a woman should chant nam myoho renge kyo when they're making love to conceive a child. Right? That's a that's a you know a, a, that's that's a kind of an accommodation of of breathtaking simplicity and and uh, and, and compassion and generosity on on Nishrin's part because it basically uh, uh, takes lay people off the hook. For, for being, uh, you know, sort of sub-Buddhists. I mean, lay people in Buddhist history have always sort of occupied a place where they were, you know, their, their, their life amidst the uh, 
the temptations and passions for property, for uh, uh, for love, for uh, even for procreation, all these things were, were seen as a, a, a kind of a weakness that had to be transcended on the Buddhist path. And Nichiren said, no, you can do all of these things and you can work with the life you have, even with worldly desires, and you can find a way to live meaningfully and happily and ultimately attain enlightenment, even in that way. You know, it's interesting to me that, uh, as I hear you speak, that Nishirin and uh, someone like uh, Francis of Assisi were on Earth at the same time, um, creating their own revolutions where they were, and and being so committed to so you know social justice in spiritual ways as they were. Um, and it remind you just reminded me that uh, you know although he's so revered, uh, Francis uh, never became a priest. He was always a layperson. And um, that was why it was so controversial um, that he would witness the life profession of someone like St. Clair of Assisi, because he had no right to do that, It was, but it was the right thing to do. And uh, it's just interesting to me, these people who galvanize, you know, who take spirituality and just galvanize it like that, um, to really get to the core of, of, what, this, of what this does. Now, I when, think they're always motivated by love. That's the thing. Yes. Oh, absolutely. But love, as you said, is is an uh, earlier in the program. Uh, it's not about escaping and calming oneself necessarily. Yeah. It's about facing what is actually happening, you know, right right yeah. now. And and I used to say, you know, in seminary, for me, mission happens with the person standing right in front of me. It's not in a faraway place. You know, it's right here. So when you began uh, to chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, did you see your condition change and, and benefits come to you? Well, you know, I, from the very beginning, I was uh, approaching the whole thing as a kind of a participant observer. This was the thing I did as a journalist. Uh, I've long believed that you can write about just about in everything but religion and maintain your journalistic uh, objectivity. Uh, but if you try to do that and you're writing about religion, you're going to end up writing about something other than religion. You're going to end up writing about an organization or a set of theological beliefs or ideas or cultural norms or whatever, but you won't re really be able to get at the spiritual nub of what people are doing when they, when they perform uh, religious uh, practices and follow a religious path. And so from the beginning, I've always believed that you have to do what you're writing about if you really want to get to the bottom of it. And so, um, for instance, I would never write an article about any form of Buddhism or about uh, any Christian or Jewish or Muslim practice that I myself hadn't done, sometimes very seriously for a long period of time. The difference was that... Um, the other practices that I had done were were all more or less uh, in the same basket with the uh, Zen practice that I'd done for so many years. In other words, they were all sort of updated, laified versions of uh, you know of ancient uh, uh, contemplative practices. Nichiren Buddhism was quite different. I approached it in the same way. I said, well, you know, I'm going to try this and I'm going to learn about it from the inside out so that I can write about it convincingly. 
But very quickly, I realized that this was a whole new basket altogether, that this was not just a new form of Buddhism that had grown up out of the ashes of World War II. This was a new form of religion itself. It was a new model of religion. And so that really, uh, you know, bumped up my level of enthusiasm for the practice. I um, got to go hunting, which is the scroll that I saw these people chanting to in New York that day. Uh, this is uh, the object of devotion. It's what Gohanzan means in Japanese. Uh, the object of devotion originally inscribed by Nishin, which is a scroll that has nam myoho renge kyo written vertically down it with Nishin's name underneath it, symbolizing the oneness of the person and, and the law of the universe and the connection that all of us have with that, with that uh, mystic law that pervades all things. It is the basis of all life and all existence. And then on either side of it, Nishiren inscribed the uh, ten worlds that one can transmigrate through. So the Gohanzan that people chant to is basically a kind of a mandala of life in all of its different aspects, seen as one thing, with Namiyoho Renge Ko running as the universal principle right down the center of it. And people chant to that in order to unite with that principle and that life force and to call it forth in their life and to manifest it as Buddhahood. So I learned to do that, uh, like everybody else uh, who practices Nishiren Buddhism does. I got a little booklet that showed me how to chant portions from the Lotus Sutra in the morning and the evening, and I chanted Namiyoho Renge Kyo uh, before my own Gohanzan, and I did that for three or four years very religiously. And uh, I, I derived tremendous benefits from it. I never became a member of the organization or a Nishirin Buddhist in the way that, uh, that most people do, however, because there was some part of me, you know, even then that was saying, my God, I have to write about this. Like, like this is, I'm witnessing the birth of a new religion, and there needs to be someone with one foot in and one foot out who can write convincingly about this and report on it for what it really is. And so uh, a part of me was always sort of observing the, the, the process, even while I was participating in it. And that involved going to Japan twice to meet with the leadership of the Sokogakai there and its pioneering members, who, who, those who are still alive from the 40s and 50s, um, and all kinds of, of research and interviews with you know, countless members all across the country. And so, but throughout, you know, many of these years, I was doing the practice myself and, and uh, you know, feeling, deriving tremendous uh, inspiration and energy from it. And it was really wonderful to have this, this sort of a daily rhythm of getting up in the morning and chanting and, you know, sort of raising my life condition and boosting my enthusiasm and my energy and praying for certain kinds of positive outcomes in my life. And then at the end of the day, doing the same thing and sort of reflecting on what happened during the day and then being able to get up in the morning again and, and, and do repeat the whole rhythm so that there was a, a sort of a forward momentum to the whole thing, a feeling that I was making progress in my life. Thank you so much, uh, Clark, for that. I can just, uh, you know, hear how your condition might change as you uh, chant to become more and more aligned with this life force. You refer to this more than once as a new form of religion. And I'd love if you could just share with me uh, a little bit about what, what makes this new to you. And also, 
Does this mean that someone would need to, um, let's say, renounce one's faith in order to chant, or can a Christian also chant as a helpful practice? You know, I'm not an official, uh, uh, I'm not a Nishiran Buddhist myself, and I'm not an uh, official representative of the Soka Gakkai uh, or any of the other Nishiran Buddhist organizations that exist in the world, and so I, I wouldn't presume to say, you know, what someone can't or can't do. Or, uh, But my understanding is that a great many people from different walks of life and religious backgrounds uh, do practice Nishiran Buddhism, and I think that many of them retain uh, some kind of affiliation or, or at least affinity with the religion of their birth. Uh, you have to realize that, uh, you know, at this point, although there are a lot of young people who are born Nishiran Buddhists in this country because the Soko Gakkai has been here uh, winning converts since the early 1960s, but for the most part, the members are people who uh, started one place and ended up someplace different. So they might have begun their lives as Christians or Jews or Muslims and uh, those who have immigrated from other countries, maybe other religious traditions. But they became uh, Nishiran Buddhists because Nishiran Buddhism seemed to offer to them uh, a much better, closer fit to their needs as modern people. And so I think that uh, the answer is that, yes, obviously, all kinds of people can uh, can do the practice. I think that my experience of meeting members various places is that uh, the, the call of Nishiran Buddhism is such a strong and powerful one that although a person might uh, retain an affiliation with their former religious uh, uh, practice, you know, once they're once they get into it, they tend to sort of leave the affiliation along, uh, you know, behind them. Although they they don't uh, they, they they don't necessarily release their affinity for that tradition. And I've oftentimes heard people at meetings refer to, oh yeah, that's just like we you know we used to say you know at the synagogue, or oh yeah, there's there's uh, an analogous uh, parable here in the New Testament to one found in the Lotus Sutra. So um, as we come sort of towards the close of the interview, I wanted to let um, listeners know that all of your um, information and book information will be posted at godspeedinstitute.com. But Clark, I just wanted to ask you one more question, which is how do you see, how do you see um, the Soka Gakkai International and Nishirin Buddhism, how do you see it affecting uh, the world and and other religions? Uh, What's your vision? How do you see things going? Well, you know, the the Soka Gakkai isn't out to convert everybody in the world or anything like that. And the effort uh, that that you mentioned earlier, Kosen Rufu, which is basically world peace through, uh, you know, through spiritual friendship, that outreach uh, takes many different forms, but the, the basic form is dialogue, so that uh, members of the Soka Gakkai uh, reach out, are constantly reaching out to other people to share their Buddhist uh, beliefs and attitudes and practice in such a way that, uh, that it is uh, able to inform the religious beliefs and practices of other people. Uh, like, for instance, myself, I'm a good example. Uh, my practice is the Catholic Rosary. I am, I am not a Catholic myself. I have no desire to become one, nor was I raised a Catholic. But I came to this practice um, uh, a few years ago uh, at the end of a very, very long period of searching. 
And what I discovered was that the rosary was the perfect practice for me and for my friends, and that I felt so strongly about it that I was even willing to get out there and share it actively with other people in the way Mishra and Buddhists do when they uh, spread their faith. But only because I wed it to the new model of religion that I had seen being practiced by the Sokogakai. So the rosary groups, for instance, that I've founded uh, operate basically like a Sokogakai discussion group. They are, uh, you know, they're egalitarian, non-hierarchical, they're based on discussion, there's no pulpit to pew model, rather there's people sitting in a circle talking about their lives and uh, how praying the rosary is, is uh, actually works in their lives to help them uh, move forward day by day to, to find happiness for themselves and for the other people that they care about in their communities. And so that's, a, you know, an example right there of, uh, you know, of one, one religious tradition cross-fertilizing another. Clark, I just wanted to thank you again for being on the program. We've been speaking with Clark Strand, author of the new book, Waking the Buddha, How the Most Dynamic and Empowering Buddhist Movement in History is Changing Our Concept of Religion. It's just been a pleasure speaking with you in this hour today. Well, it's been so wonderful talking with you too, Karen. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to godspeedinstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey. <laughs>